Last week we looked at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 as we looked at uh, the circumstances that lead to the fall of man. That the circumstances, what was it, what happened that led Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness, to, um, to reject His word and to choose for themselves and thus to fall into sin by disobeying Him and following uh, the serpent. Tonight, I want to look at the fallout. What happens in the aftermath of the fall. So we're going to pick up in verse 8 and read through uh, the end of the chapter. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden because I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken." For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out. From the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. I wonder if you can remember, if you can pull up in your memory, sometime in your childhood, perhaps your teenage years, uh, where you were explicitly not invited, right? You were explicitly, intentionally left out, explicitly excluded. Maybe for you, um, as a young boy, it was no girls allowed, and, and 
And maybe for you as a girl, that's what, uh, what scarred you, that the boys wouldn't let you play. Maybe it was the reverse. It was no boys allowed. Maybe it was a time uh, when it was only grown-ups allowed. Maybe it was your teenage years, when, and it still lingers today. There's no greater pain, right, than to begin a week looking through your social media only to see that all your friends had a blast this weekend, and not one of them invited you. We can even, we can, when we think about those memories, the, the wounds run deep. We feel them even as we recall them. C.S. Lewis gave a speech or a lecture uh, to some graduates one time, and it's collected in an essay now called The Inner Ring. And this is one thing that he says. He says, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the ring and the terror of being left outside. Right? We feel that. We're all social creatures. We're at a place called college where being social is kind of part of the, part of the deal. I think I love that quote that one of the most dominant elements of life is the desire to be on the inside and the terror, the fear of being left on the outside, right? I think Lewis is exactly right. And the reason I think he's right is because of a spiritual memory inside of every human heart that we read about here in Genesis chapter 3 that the primary consequence of the fall, the primary consequence of our sin is alienation. It's being cast out. Out from the presence of God. Out from the Garden of Eden, that paradise And feeling alienated also from one another. That's what we see, this estrangement, this disconnectedness that results from the fall when we were actually made for fellowship and for union and for belonging. So I want to look at two things tonight about the fall. I've got them there on your sheet. The result of the fall, um, and then I want to look at the remedy for the fall. And here's what happens. Though there is definitely a shadow here that falls over the blessed world that God created. What we are at the same time seeing is that all is not lost. That there remains rays of hope. So that's what I want to see here. The results and then the remedy. First thing is the results of the fall. And in one word, as I've already said, it's alienation. If you wanted to sum up the primary consequence of the fall, the primary result of the fall, it's alienation. And I want to look at this alienation in three ways. Alienation from God, alienation from one another, and alienation from the world. Okay, we see all three of these happening here. And there's so much going on, we can't break it all down. But let's just run through this real quick, those three sets of alienation. First, look at verse 8, where we started. As we read through, as we read as Adam and Eve were created, as they were created for union and blessing and harmony with God, as they were created for those same things to enjoy with each other, as they used to enjoy friendship and fellowship and intimacy with their Maker, now in verse 8, after their sin, now at the very sound... Of that same God walking in the garden. They hide. They're afraid. And so they hide themselves. Uh, the, the Hebrew literally reads that they hid themselves from his face. And so what we see here that immediately, existentially, the first fruit of sin is to be cut off from God. That's it. That's the first fruit. It's also kind of the root of everything else that flows in this passage and everything else that flows into history forward from this moment. That we all are born into and we all live with this existential guilt 
that we are wrong, that we are guilty. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we all bear this. We no longer enjoy, because of our sin, fellowship with our Creator. And so whether we acknowledge it or not, we do know, most of us know, there's a sense in us. We feel undone. We feel not right. We feel like something in this world, something in this life is off. And the root cause of it is the breaking of fellowship. With God because of our sin. We actually see this manifest itself throughout the rest of the Bible. Every person from this point on, because of sin, every person that comes into the presence of the living God trembles in fear. It happens throughout the rest of the Bible. To name uh, a few, uh, Isaiah 6. Isaiah was a prophet. He was called of God to be a prophet. Okay, And in Isaiah 6, he is brought into the throne room of God himself in heaven. And the first, the only thing Isaiah can get out of his mouth is, Woe is me, for I am lost. The literal word, the literal translation there is, I am undone. I am coming apart. Revelation chapter 1, I find this one fascinating. Revelation chapter 1, as John begins uh, that letter. John was known as the beloved the disciple, uh, the, the disciple of love, because one, he had what we can tell one of the more intimate relationships with Jesus than the other disciples. And that's love is one of the things he writes about the most. And so it's that John who knew Jesus, who reclined with Jesus, who laid his head on Jesus's shoulder at the last supper, right? It's that John, when he has his first vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter one, he tells us that he fell down as if he were dead. You know, and many, some might say, you know, I don't know, you know, I I believe there's a God, uh, but I don't know that I've necessarily ever felt like cut off from him. I know I can probably be capable of things that displease him or whatever, but I don't know that I've felt uh, cut off from him. We have to understand that because of sin, because of the reality of sin, because of the reality of the fall, this is not a God that you can be comfortable with because he's holy. And we're not. And what you see throughout the Bible is that when people come face to face with this God, that fact is what sticks most clearly in their minds. That He is holy and that they are not. Because of sin, because of our alienation from God, this alienation is at the root of all of our beings, whether we acknowledge it or not. And this directly relates to to all the other ones. So alienation from God, there's also alienation from each other. And what's something that we've remarked on this for a couple of weeks, one of, the, one, of my, one of the most fascinating things to me in the creation account is at the end of Genesis 2, the last thing the author of Genesis wants to tell us is that they were both naked. Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. But now, they are full of shame. And after they hide from God, the first thing they do is attempt to cover their nakedness. And throughout the rest of the Bible, nakedness in the rest of the Bible is now equated with shame. Adam and Eve are no longer comfortable with their own selves. They're almost alienated from their own selves. They feel inadequate. They feel exposed. And so they hide from God, but they also hide from each other. And this is why it's the, the alienation from God is the root. When you lose relationship with God, you lose who you are. When you lose fellowship with your maker, you lose who you are. There's a loss of identity and now there's a birth of insecurity, of fear, anxiety. There's this sense born in man and in his heart now, this need to cover up, 
This need to show myself to be okay when I know that I am not. They feel trapped in their shame and their guilt and they will do anything and and we will do anything to try and break free from it. The shame of their nakedness, this is the most heartbreaking part. The shame of their nakedness points to now how they feel about each other. Created for each other, for perfect love and harmony as, as far as human relationships would know it. And now they sow fig leaves to cover from each other. And it's heartbreaking. And the point is that sin is the cause. Sin, our alienation from God and our sin against God is the cause of every failing in our relationship. Any, any failing or shortcoming you can identify in your relationships. What we're being told here is sin is the root cause for all of us. Remember what we talked about the lie was last week. The, one of the lies that they believed last week was that God couldn't be trusted. And what we see the fruit of that is, is as soon as they believe that lie, as soon as they believe God can't be trusted, now they can't trust each other. They've opened the door for it. If you can't trust God, you can't trust anyone. All you can do is kind of look out for yourself. If you don't know or believe that you have the love of God, how can you give love or receive love from another person? This is what they're dealing with. As their alienation from God also leads to alienation from each other. I don't know if you saw the last Rocky movie. It's called Creed. Uh, Michael B. Jordan plays Adonis Creed. I think that was his name. Uh, the illegitimate son of a former boxing champion, Apollo Creed. I loved this movie. It was so great. Um, but Adonis Creed, he's the illegitimate son. Apollo Creed never met his father. Uh, he grows up kind of as a rough, um, rough growing up because he's always lashing out. Uh, getting in fights, getting in trouble. Uh, then he starts to kind of put that into boxing and he forms this relationship with Rocky, right? Rocky Balboa. And, you know, as good as it is, there's still, he still has some t- problems trusting sometimes and letting Rocky lead him and tell him what's what. He gets a girlfriend that loves him uh, and takes care of him, but then there's jealousy issues there and he has problems there. Finally, you get to the end of the movie. He's in this big fight that he w- had no business being in with the champion of the world. Um, and he's held his own, but it's just time to end it. He's getting beat up, right? And so during one of the uh, in-between rounds, Rocky comes out to him and says, look, you're done. You're done. And he says, no, I'm not done. He says, and so Rocky says, what are you doing? What are you trying to prove? To which he says, I got to prove I'm not a mistake. And in that moment, right there at the end of the movie, this fight, you see that the whole, the motivating factor for Adonis' creed entire life was the fact that he was the illegitimate son of his father. And so every issue that he had had in his whole life was rooted in that fact. This is what you and I are dealing with. That if our souls cannot rest in God's love and delight of us, then we're going to move into relationships to prove that we're lovable. To prove that we can get approval. To prove that we can get affection. In other words, we'll move into relationships and we'll use relationships. We'll use people to get those things. And we'll avoid people in situations that don't offer them. And you see the main way that this manifests, it, manifests itself in Adam and Eve? Is the blaming, right? Adam, what is this if you have done? And do you notice who Adam blamed? It's easy to say he blamed Eve, but who did he really blame? The woman you gave me. It's kind of like, all right, Adam, you're about to get struck by lightning. Um, but that doesn't happen. 
Right? The blame shifting. Adam blames Eve and God. Eve points to the serpent. You want to know one of the most tangible signs of your alienation from God is when nothing is ever your fault. You see this manifest in your relationships, right? You're the kind of person that just can't have ever owned anything. You can't ever say you're sorry. It's a sign of our alienation. The final thing we see in our alienation is alienation from the world. You notice there, the, as God pronounces the curse to Adam, Adam doesn't get one constructive thing said to him. Among them, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. So nature is no longer this open source of life to be cultivated. That can only come through sweat and toil now. Romans 8, Paul puts it like this, that the whole creation is groaning for our redemption because of our sin. The entire cosmos is groaning because of us, we who have subjected it to futility. George Whitfield was a, a revival preacher, not revival, well, I guess revival, in the Great Awakening. Um, Great Awakening. Um, and this is one thing he used to say in his sermons. He would say, do you know why the cats hiss and the dogs bark when you walk by? It's because they know that you have a quarrel with your maker. I love that. That nature itself knows that we are not right. And they know that they're not right because of it. Where there was peace and harmony and blessing that defined all that God had made, there is now alienation and brokenness and cursing because of our sin. That's in a nutshell, probably an insufficient nutshell, the results of the fall. But wrapped up in all this, what we're also seeing, I want you to see, is that we're also actually seeing the remedy, the beginning of it, the promises of it, the hopes of it. It all seems really harsh, right? This is all so dark. Like, why does God go into all this? But for one, first you've got to remember, Adam and Eve believed, one of, the, one of the other lies that Adam and Eve believed was that their sin wasn't going to have consequences. And so here's actually one way for you to think about what's happening here, what God is doing. That it's actually by God's grace that we are told that sometimes, and sometimes we're made painfully aware, that our sin has consequences. That there are times when we can actually feel what our sin has done. But also, think about this. What meaning does our salvation have? we don't understand what we're being saved from. I wonder if you ever struggle. I mean, if you're anything like me, I guess. Um, I don't think I'm the only one. If you ever struggle, maybe, maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you grew up around Christianity, the gospel. But sometimes you struggle. Like, like I know that that should be like my motivate. The gospel, the good news of grace should be just the motivating factor in my life at all times. But sometimes I just don't really feel it. And some of you... Uh, maybe um, you talk about a disconnect between your head and your heart. Or maybe, maybe you just think that you have not had a legitimate experience of Jesus and his love and his care yet in your life. What if actually what we need at times is a full and unveiled picture of our sin? What it is. What it does. What we are because of it. Maybe you need to know that your sin is real. It's a real thing that separates you from the living God. Maybe you need to know 
that it's not something that you can just manage. It's not something that you get like a pass-fail grade of how well you kept it over here. That our sin is real. That our sin is heavy. That there's a gravity to it. That there are consequences to it. And we need to fully understand anew who it's against. This is what God is doing for us here. And it's actually His grace. I know that's a weird way to think about it. But let's look at this. The remedy for the fall, for the fall is also threefold. The first is this. How about God's initiative? God's initiative in providing a remedy. Where do you see it? I think you see it right out of the gate. I think this is one of the more remarkable parts of Genesis chapter 3. God knew what they had done. He's God, right? He knew that they had forfeited any claim to life and its blessings. But what did He do? He walks right back into the garden to find them. I think it's profound. And look, what are his first words? I would suggest to you, his first words are full of grace. They're an invitation. Where are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? He's not, you know, we kind of have this image. He he doesn't go like, hey, y'all, it's what I do as a parent, really. Y'all better get out here right now, right? It's not what he does. And then, you look at, Genesis, look at verse 15. What is uh, referred to in, in the, theology textbooks as the proto-euangelion. The first offer of the gospel. And it goes like this. I will put, he t- says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and her. Between those who come from you and from those who come from her. You see, you got to take into account how remarkable that is. They had chosen the serpent over God. They had chosen the serpent's words over God's words. They had chosen the serpent's interpretation of life over God's. And what does God say in Genesis 3.15? This is what He's saying. I'm not going to let them do that. I'm not going to let them continue in that. I'm not going to let them, serpent. I'm not going to let them follow you. I'm not going to let them. And yet, this is what I mean when I ask. Maybe you, maybe you struggle with the fact, why doesn't Christianity or the gospel or whatever mean more to me? Why, if you struggle with whether or not God's love moves you? May I make a suggestion that the, a possibility might be this. It's because you think it's up to you. And it's not. It's not. The glory of the gospel, the glory of Christianity, the glory of the Bible is that God's people know and delight in this truth that He came and found me. That He came and claimed me. That He came and got me. When I wouldn't have on my own because of my sin. God's initiative, even here in Genesis 3, He initiates the plans of redemption and restoration. And the rest of the Bible talks about how He will also finish those plans ultimately one day. And that's the good news, that He's going to do it. Why? Because it has to be. That has to be the news. Or we're hopeless. But we get it here, right out of the gate. So God's initiative, the next thing we see is God's discipline. 
Do you notice something about the curses? Did you notice who the subject was of the curses? God's the subject. I will do this. Because you have done this, I will curse this. I will do this. It's God's word. We see before this that God's word set the conditions for the blessing, but now he pronounces the curses because of sin. To Eve, he says, I will increase your pain. To Adam, he says, now in pain, you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. And we think, and again, it is unsettling. We think, man, that seems kind of harsh. Why would God cause pain? And again, here it is. I offer it to you. It's by God's grace that our sin carries consequences. Why? The implication here is because if it didn't, we would happily continue in it and we would never leave it. The overarching purpose of these judgment was to drive Adam and Eve back to God. And so is this just like some divine guilt manipulation? Like we're obviously prone to that, but no. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives. God disciplines the ones He loves. He lets our sins have consequences so that we won't stay in them. To drive us away from them and back to Himself. Now look, any parenting illustration comes up short. Because God loves us with a perfect love. I am far, far from any kind of perfect parent. Right? But as my boys would tell you, I mean, I don't say that my daughter is my favorite, but they would tell you. I love my daughter, right? And I pour my love out of my daughter, and she plays hard to get all the time. It breaks my heart, but it's fine. I'm fine. But I can remember time, you know, of all my children, of course, she would be the one to inherit my temper uh, the most tangibly. But one of my things, you know, I lo- she loves me. I love to go in and lay down with her as she's going to bed, sometimes read her something, sometimes read her a song, Right. One night, I, I can't remember, there wasn't even anything that particular that set her off, but like, she just went off, like, because I wasn't reading the right book or something. I mean, she came unhinged, okay? And so, in a rare moment of, of calmness, I just, I got up and I said, look, you lost your temper, you just got to go to bed. I turned the lights off and I left. And y'all, the noises that came out of this girl... <laughs> It was awful. But like I can remember it. So this is a few years ago. I can remember so vividly, like standing outside of her room, because she started she it was still anger. But it was like, Daddy, I want my daddy, I love you. And it was like, I love you in anger. It's kind of interesting. Um, but I remember standing outside the door. I wanted nothing more in that moment to run back in and hold her and calm her down and tell her everything was gonna be okay. But I made the choice not to. And looking back on it, I think the, cho- the reason for the choice was this. Because my pain in that moment and her pain in that moment are not worth comparing to the pain that she would continue to endure and continue to afflict upon others if she came to think that, that it was okay to treat people like that. 
And again, parenting illustrations are far from perfect because I'm a very imperfect parent. But I stayed outside because I loved her. She needed to know that that wasn't okay. Right? The Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he does it perfectly. You know, that emptiness, even though you can't wait for the next party, the emptiness you feel the next morning or the next beginning of the next week, that no amount of alcohol could make go away. Maybe that emptiness is a gift to help you realize how empty it is, to make you realize that those things are not going to fill you. Maybe the shame that you feel over repeated patterns, now self-loathing is not something God wants, but maybe the shame we experience sometimes from repeated patterns is an invitation to say, this is, the, this is what, all that sin gives us. Could you believe, would you dare to believe that God loves you so much that He might be willing to let your idols incredibly disappoint you to incredibly even maybe cause you pain so that you would see them for what they were. False gods. False hopes. The Lord disciplines the ones He loves. So God's initiative is, in, is the remedy. God's discipline is the remedy. But finally, God's covering. God's covering. There's no mistaking that to be under God's curse is to bear His judgment. That's what's happening here. But what we also see here is what it does not mean is it does not mean we are beyond His reach. It doesn't. Verse 21, we read there that He makes them garments of skins to cover them. And what this immediately points us to is that God sees, God knows, God meets our needs. He will. He does. He covers our shame. He provides for us a covering. And he's, how is He ultimately going to do this? I would tell you it's right here. Look at verse 20, 24. He drove out the man and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. That doesn't sound like much of a solution. But hear about this. The cherubim, every time they're pictured in the Bible, they were the guardians of God's holiness. That, that was what seems to be the purpose of their existence. Uh, and we see this sword that turns in every direction. So what we're being told here is that man's way back to God is not just difficult. It's resisted. And it's actually impossible on your own. Man cannot save himself. That's the picture that we're given here. It's the same thing, actually, interestingly enough, when you read forward into the Old Testament, it's the same thing, we see it pictured in the tabernacle, in the temple, um, that when you went into God's presence, you had to pass an altar. And you had to go through a veil. And you had to stand before the Ark of the Covenant with two cherubim on top of it. All pictures, all picturing for us the way of salvation. Because what we're being told is that the way back in, is the only way back in, is that the sword must fall. Justice has to be satisfied. The debt must be paid. And so the hope here that we even begin to see, Genesis 3.15, and even beyond here now in verse 20 and beyond, we see that there's this hope that there's one who would come, that there's one maybe that could come and satisfy it, that there's one that could come and pay it, that there's one who could come and bear the curse so that we can get back in. 
So you understand, it's no mistake when the writers of the New Testament, like Paul in Galatians 3, use language like this. That Christ redeemed us from what? The curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who was hanged on a tree. And that's precisely what he did. He was cast out. He was stripped naked. He underwent the sword and he was even pierced by it. So that you and I can become what? Interestingly enough, what Genesis 3, what it seems like is that creation is ruined. But then what we're promised later on in Scripture is that in Jesus, what do we become? New creations. That you and I, in Jesus, by His Spirit, begin this process of reversing the effects of the fall and our sin, far as the curse is found, as we sing at Christmas time. This is what I love. Look at verse 20. The implication in verse 20 is that Adam got it. He didn't clearly see how and what it was going to happen, but he got it. He names his wife Eve, which means life. Perhaps recognizing God's promise that there is one that would come from her. In other words, as I know we're not far into it, but Genesis, the book of beginnings, what happens for Adam and his wife and the rest of mankind at this moment? They begin again. They begin again. They're able to begin again to begin to believe and have faith in God's words over their own and over Satan's to believe and trust in God's interpretation of life and the world and not their own. Again, the author of Hebrews encourages us in this way. Therefore, my brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. That is through His flesh. The invitation is, you're not ruined. There is a new and living way. It could even be a new beginning. It's an invitation for all of us. Let's pray. Father, it is dark and sad and heartbreaking to see this story unfold here. But Father, we pray that through it you would use it, that you would give us eyes to see what our sin is, what our sin does, its gravity, its consequence. But Father, would you do as you did for them? Would you call us? Would you call to us? Would you call us to yourself? And would you assure us that it's not up to us to find a way? That you've provided it. Father, we need that. We need to believe it. And we need hearts to believe it. And we pray that you give that to us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.